Hey, we're going to continue in our series in Esther. Last week we started this and we were introduced to uh, Queen Esther and how she went from orphan to queen. We also met King Xerxes, who was the ruler over this Persian media uh, empire. It was actually probably the world's first superpower uh, that consisted of like 127 different providences, uh, cities, counties, whatever you want to, or towns, states. I, yeah, I should have paid attention in, was it geography? Yeah, geology is rocks for jocks. Geography is, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we also met Mordecai, who was the uncle of Esther, uh, who took Esther in and takes care of her and uh, continues to watch over her. Uh, we also met Queen Vashti, who, and I love this, where her husband, uh, after a six-month uh, bender, decides that he wants to show her off to everybody, and she says, no, ain't gonna happen. Uh, and, but she was eventually deposed because of that. Her crown was taken from her, and so that's where we see Queen Esther move from an orphan up to queen. Well, today we get to be introduced to the villain, but, uh, and that villain is Haman. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Esther. And I want you to strap in a little bit because there's a ton of history that we've got to cover to make sure that everybody's up to speed with this. All right, so with that, click your seatbelt. Let's get going, okay? Chapter three, verses one and two. After these events, after uh, Esther has, been, has risen to uh, the queen and there was a big festival for her, a big feast and everything, there is, uh, that's what that after these events is. King Xerxes honored Haman's son, and remember, Always say it like you know it's the name, okay? Hamadatha. Have no idea if that's how you pronounce it, but it's how I'm doing it. Hamadatha. Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevated him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai, Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. This is the history lesson. We need to understand and appreciate the incredible tension that lies between Haman and Mordecai. In our text, it says that he is an Agagite. Agagite is, uh, the, we get Agagite from King Agog. And King Agog was the king of the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites, you ready for this? This, gets, this is going to start getting convoluted a little bit here. The Amalekites are actually the first group of people that attack Israel once they have left Israel, uh, since they left Egypt. And the Amalekites come from Amalek, who is the 13th son of Esau, whose twin brother is Jacob, whose father is Isaac, whose grandfather is Abraham. Did you guys get that? There's a quiz. 
All right. Agog, or an Agagite, is royal blood. And so Haman has, somewhere in that line, as an Amalekite, he fell underneath this Agog bloodline. And so he comes from a place of position and power. He was born into it. Now, it's very important to understand the hatred. And I don't like using that word, but it is a visceral dislike of the Israelite people. They were the very first nation that went to war against Israel. Now think of Israel. They have been in slavery for 400 years. They're really good at making bricks. They're really good at laying bricks. They're really good at building things, but warriors was not part of their job description. And yet, soon after leaving Egypt, they are forced in dealing with these Amalekites. And the Amalekites wouldn't just attack, but they would kind of sit in the background and they would go for the weakest point. Now, it's probably a good military strategy, but it's kind of scoundrelish, okay? Uh, in that they would go towards the back of the line and they would take out the, the, the younger or the older or the more frail but they were trying to completely annihilate the Israelites. There is a great passage in, uh, in Exodus, and you guys are probably familiar with this, when Moses and the, uh, the people of Israel are being forced to go to war against the Amalekites. And so Joshua is given the great privilege to become the warrior, the leading general for, for Israel, go down and fight him. Moses said, I'm going to stay up here. I'm going to be the general, but I'm really going to be communicating with God. And we're going to be beseeching God to fight the battle for us. And that's exactly what happened. And so Moses is up on the mountaintop. And this is that story where Moses has the staff and he keeps his hands above his head. And as long as his arms are above his head, his hands are above his head, the Israelites are winning. But as soon as his arms get tired or he gets physically tired and he drops his arms, the Amalekites start winning. And so they realize, okay, let's get Moses a seat. So Moses sits down and then I love this. Aaron and her, two men, come alongside Moses and hold his arms up. Man, that is great stuff because it reminds us that we always need community. We need people in our lives. And so those people came for such a time as that to help Moses, but more importantly, to allow God to do his work and for the Israelites to be victorious over the Amalekites. Now listen, there is a passage also in 1 Samuel 15 where King Saul is given very explicit instructions. Because the Amalekite sin has become so egregious that they must be destroyed. The God has called out the evil and said, I am going to deal with this. And part of me dealing with this is I am sending you, Israel, I am sending you, Saul, to go and annihilate them. That's men, women, children, sheep, cattle, your dog, 
and all the gold and silver, everything is to be turned over to God. But yet Saul chose, and man, isn't this us sometimes, the things that he didn't like be more than happy to do exactly what God says. But the things that are kind of cool, maybe I won't. And so these are the words that Samuel wrote and spoke to King Saul when it was found out that Saul did not finish what he was instructed to do by God. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Now that word destroyed, and I touched upon this here in just a second ago, does not mean to crush and annihilate. What it does mean is that we are going to fully turn this over to God. And God's instructions were that you are going to be my hand of punishment on these people. But what is amazing is that Saul took it upon himself to decide and to put himself in the place of God. Let me ask you this. How many of us do this in our own lives? God, you are Lord of my life. God, I give you everything except this part. Now, I wish I could tell you that I could stand before you and say, Lord, you are Lord of my life and I've given everything over to you and there's nothing else for me to give over. But there are still things that I hold on to. There are still things that each of us hold on to. And we think, this is good. But God is saying, no, it needs to be purged. And I am beseeching you to let it go and to give it to me, to fully turn it over to me. So this gives you an outline of the great, the hatred between the Amalekites, Haman, and the Jewish people, Mordecai. And Mordecai will not, and I don't believe, at least in my mind, I don't believe that he was overtly disrespectful to Haman, but when Haman would walk in, no, he would not bow. Because he knows the heart, and he knows the character of Haman, and he goes, I will not do it. But I don't think he was verbal about it. I would assume that Haman would walk in and Mordecai would simply do one of these. And Haman would walk by and he'd just look forward. But this irked Haman because Haman believed with every fiber of who he was that he was the man. And when you're the man, you owe me. And Mordecai is saying, I don't want any part of this. So as we go on in with this, this account here within Esther, in verses five and six of chapter three, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of only killing Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy. Now I will tell you, in this word destroy, it means to crush. It means genocide. 
all right? He was looking for a way to completely eliminate, eradicate, get rid of all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now remember, this is the modern day known world. So in other words, we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people that, that Haman is going, I want them gone. And so he gets this great idea. I know what I'm going to do. I am going to manipulate the king. And I'm going to come up with a plan. And so his plan is that he is going to set a specific date and go and tell the king, say, listen, you've got some people that are not really following you and obeying your laws. I really think they should be made, you know, we should make them a, well, you know, they need to go. Because you can't allow some people group to not obey you because then everything else will fall apart. It's the very story of what happened with the nobles in Queen Vashti. If you don't do something about this, it'll just take on a life of its own. And so he gets this idea and what he does, and this is where we get the word Purim, which is this festival that will eventually be... Um, celebrated on an annual basis for the deliverance of Israel through this account with Esther. I'm gonna leave that up to Jason to talk to you guys about, okay? But a pure is the dice. And basically what Haman did is he rolls the dice. And he says, what day? <laughs> okay, what month? <laughs> All right, there it is. And so there's a plan. Haman has a plan. And these are the words uh, that on verse seven, he says, on the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pure, the dice that is, a lot was cast in the presence of Haman to select the day and the month. And the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. And so it is set. And so with that, there is a decree that goes out to all the known world at that time. Everything underneath King Xerxes' uh, rule. There's a decree that goes out. Verse 13 says, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to, and I love this, this is pretty specific. These couriers sent these messages to all the provinces in the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So in other words, you get to kill everybody. And whatever's really cool, you can have it. And what Haman has done now is he has, he has created this incredible plan that he is going to eradicate the number one enemy of his people. And what's really, really cool about this is that Haman is like the very last of the Amalekites. And he says, it is up to me to do this. And so this is the plan that he's given and so as we know, as this story goes on, this edict went out, and it's amazing how sometimes we are, and even Esther, is, she doesn't even realize what's going on here, but Mordecai soon finds out what's going on. 
And so he's wearing sackcloth and ashes and she's looking out the window from the palace and she's going, what the heck is he doing? What is Mordecai doing? Isn't it amazing sometimes when we're in our own little kingdoms, how we can miss what's happening around us. We only see what's right before us. And this is what is happening with Esther right now. This decree has gone out. Mordecai knows about it. Mordecai knows all the details that even that Haman said, listen, king, I want this to happen so much. I don't want this to be a financial burden for you. I will even pay for it. I will give you so much silver. And in today's money, I did the things just this morning with silver being $26 an ounce or something like that. He was willing to give to the king's coffer to pay for the execution of Israel over $271 million. $271 million today. That's a lot of bank. Imagine what it was in 600 BC. This is the extent. And Mordecai realizes this. And Mordecai realizes there something has to happen. Esther is looking at him going, what's going on? And so she sends one of her members, her, the, her attendants to go out and speak with Mordecai. And Mordecai gives her this information. He says, listen, there's bad stuff happening. Your people are going to be executed. There's a day, it's been set and you're the queen, you need to go do it. And he says, go into the king's presence and to, to beg for mercy and plead with the king for your people. And I would tell you, her first response is, mm-mm, not me. You want me to do what? And so she sends back a message to Mordecai and she goes, I need to explain a few things of what you're asking me to do that I'm not gonna do. And here's the reasons why I'm not gonna do it. I wonder how many times when we initially hear something, our reaction is, mm -mm. This is what Esther's response to Mordecai's request. You've gotta go see the king. You have to put an end to this. But this is the problem also. This is the problem is that this has become law. And with it becoming law, there is no revoking the law. How many of y'all seen Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? I think it was, oh, come on. Okay, thank you, thank you. All right, don't you dare make me think I'm that old, okay? Huh. There's the, the lines, Yul Brenner plays Pharaoh, and his thing is, so let it be written, so let it be done. So let it be written, so let it be done. That's the law of the Persians and the Medians. When the king's edict goes out, there is no revoking it. And so she is realizing there's laws here. I can't do anything. If I try to go in here, this is what's gonna happen. And so this is the response that she sends to Mordecai. Hathak is her emissary that's going out to speaking with Mordecai. Hathak went back and reported uh, to Esther that what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, you ready? All the king's officials and the people of the royal province know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, 
The king has but one law. That they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to even go to the king. So the first thing that she is telling Mordecai is not me. I'm not doing this. Why me? I'm a nobody. There is, there's got to be somebody else to do it. I ain't doing this. And I wonder how many of us think that when we see situations that come up and we say, oh, nope, not me, not going to do it. Mm-mm, there's got to be somebody else. That's not my gifting. There's also rules. Now, I don't know about you. The rule was you can't, you ready? You go in there just on your own. You don't walk in to the throne, throne room going, sub zerks. You don't do that. I was a little kid, and maybe, I don't know if you guys, my parents' bedroom was like totally off limits. The door may be wide open, but there was like a force field right here, and you could only go so far, and you'd have to ask, may I come in? It's not can I, may I come in? So let it be written, so let it be done. Yeah. (laughs) And so I'm a rule follower. I don't want to break the rules. I am an absolute rule follower. And sometimes my own detriment. And I like the written rules, but I also understand a number of the unwritten rules that we have. And I don't want to be one of those people that rocks the boat. And I don't know if that's you. Is that you? Hey, I I don't want to rock the boat. Somebody else can do this. It's okay. And these are the things that I believe are going through Esther's mind. And then finally, she goes, listen, in the last part about this, you ready? The king hasn't even asked to see me in 30 days, which means, you know, I'm really starting to doubt that he even likes me. Maybe I'm not pretty enough. Maybe I'm all these things that begin to go through our minds when somebody, maybe because they're busy running the world, I don't know, and they stop paying attention to us, and we begin to think, oh, no, it's something I've done, and so fear overtakes us. Now, I don't know if that's what is going on through Esther's mind, but these are the things that she's pouring out to Mordecai, and she goes, I can't do this. I'm not the man. I'm not the person. I'm not the one. Anyways, there's got to be somebody else. This is played out so many times in so many different ways. A bunch of us have seen this. I want to share a really cool uh, phenomena that happens. How many of you are all are familiar with the slap heard around the world? Come on, please. There it is. Bam! Remove your, my wife's name from your mouth. The third time I saw that video, at first, you know, you watch it like, oh, man. And then you realize, oh, wait, Will laughed at the joke at first. And then, ooh. But after about the third or fourth time, what amazes me about this, and if you go back and you watch this, nobody, and I mean nobody, said or did anything. Anything. 
And this is what's going through Esther's mind. There is this bystander effect. This is a very real phenomenon that happens. That in a large group, when somebody sees something or when the group sees that something needs to be acted upon, they will hesitate because they are thinking within the group, well, it's not my responsibility. And if nobody else steps up, then I'm not supposed to either. See, there's this great thing that we call diffusion of responsibility. The more people in the room, the less responsibility I have. That's what happened with Chris Rock and Will Smith. It's what's happening with Queen Esther. It's what happens within ourselves as well. We see things going on in the world and we make ourselves to be so small and we say, well, it's not about me. It can't be about me. I can't ask me to do this. But maybe, just maybe, what God is saying is, listen, I have equipped you and I have given you and I am allowing you to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and to experience this because I'm asking you to go out and to lead. I'm asking you to go and make the difference. I'm asking you to go rock the boat. And it's okay to rock the boat. Mordecai is going to send this message back after she's going, I don't want to do this. And he's saying, don't you dare just be a passive observer. You cannot just be a bystander. And this is what Mordecai's response to Esther when she says, not me. He goes, listen, he sent back this message. Do not think because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. In other words, understand this. God is going to work. God's plan is going to work. If you choose to be with it or not, God's sovereignty will always win out. Let me ask you this. How many of you in those worst situations in your life doubted that God's sovereignty was going to work out? How many of us in our worst situations have we not cried out, God, where are you? Where are you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then with time, we can look back and we see, oh, I see exactly where God was. He was right in the middle there with me. And just as Romans says, God was taking very difficult things and because I believe in him and because I'm following him and because he's Lord of my life, he is taking the very hard things and he's making me better. I cannot tell you how many of the worst days of my life removed from them, I can go back now and I can say, that was the worst day, but it was also the best day of my life because in that moment, I followed Jesus. Could this not be what Mordecai is telling Esther? Let me get back to the text. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's household will perish. And who knows, and we know this one, and who knows that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this? This is where we want to stop 
the story. And we sit there and we need to understand that Esther has two reactions in all that's happening. There is the initial knee-jerk reaction. Mm-mm, not going to do it. But now with Mordecai's words, she takes a step back and she thinks. In a world where we are called to make decisions like that, we have stopped and we minimize the ability to think and to reason. We are trained with these silly things. I cannot begin to understand why any of you all would want an eye watch. This thing goes off. I'm already Pavlov's dog. And I refuse to put the ringer on because I can't stand the ding. Yeah. And so I just let it vibrate. All right. I can't imagine it having on my wa- on my wrist too. I, I I'd implode. <laughs> we have so many demands, and we have all these things, and we never allow ourselves the opportunity to think. But that's what Esther did. She chose to think about this for just a moment. The second thing that she did is that, and we're going to see this, is that she decided, okay, this is beyond me. This is beyond me. This is a God thing. Scripture says that she went on, she said, and Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or night or day. And I will tend, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. So what she did, she said, listen, Mordecai, what you've told me is absolutely right. I can no longer sit back. But I'm not going to go in this underneath my own power and underneath my own wisdom. I need you to fast and pray with me for three days. And there's a great confidence that she has here because she tells him, I'm going to go. But before we go, we're going to fast and pray for three days. And what I firmly believe is she goes, I know that God will be with me. I know that God will give me exactly what I need in this situation. And so for us, I wonder, instead of just doing a knee-jerk reaction, when we get something and responding, that's social media. Somebody posts something that you don't like, oh, here it goes, game on. Drop the gloves, I'm pulling the sweater up over your head, and I'm gonna box your ears, let's go. And I'm gonna do it verbally. And we never think. But we think and we pray Dare I say we ever fast and we rest in God that you will give me the wisdom and everything that I need, everything that we need to be sufficient and to make an impact for your kingdom. And I love these words of Esther. I'm going to go to the king and if I perish, I perish. But I cannot sit back idly. Now, folks, I will tell you, that is us. So 
so many of us, we have found ourselves in our own little kingdoms with a little K, and we're comfortable. But maybe, just maybe, God is calling us to something greater than just our little kingdom, kingdoms. And it doesn't have to be grandiose. But there are times where we need to open our eyes and open our ears and open our heart for what God has in store for us and to see where God has placed us for such a time as this. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come on out. And this is the gist of what I want you to get here. Stop wishing you were someone else, somewhere else, doing something else. Let me say that again. Stop wishing you were someone else, somewhere else, doing something else. Because I believe that in your moments, you are exactly what is needed. Moms, on Mother's Day, we celebrate you because you chose to be in every one of the moments. You may not have done it perfect, but that's okay. You were there. Now, Father's Day, we'll just beat you guys up, okay? But anyways, but Mother's Day, <laughs> thank you for being in the moments. For the right moment, for this moment. But guys, there's many moments that we have too. That we need to be mindful of those moments. And who thinks that we are at that place, that time, that moment for a very specific reason. But if I'm enmeshed in my own kingdom, I'll never see where God's working and I'll miss the great opportunity to partner with him. Matthew uh, chapter 25 is the story about the sheep and the goats. And I promise this will make sense here in a second. But I wanna read this account to you. Many of you are gonna be very familiar with this. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now I'll let you know that when this was written, there was a substantial, um, there was not a substantial difference in identifying a sheep and a goat. Because of genetics and breeding and stuff like that, we can pretty much pick out the sheep and the goats now. Sheep, big fluffy thing over there. The goat, the ornery thing with the horns over there, okay? It wasn't necessarily like that when Jesus is talking about this. It was only the shepherd that could really discern between what the sheep were and the goats were. And so it takes the shepherd to come. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. 
I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me and I was in prison and you came and visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you did not give me anything to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will tell you, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now I will tell you, this is one of those hard passages and it requires us to have vision to see, but it's not necessarily even our vision, it's God's vision. And I wanna share two things with you, the goat the goats in these story, goats at best are independent and obstinate beings. They are opinionated. I read something along the lines where if you put a goat in a stall with a horse, eventually a goat would eat the horse's tail. I'm not a farmer, I don't understand that, but I do understand goats will eat anything and they'll do whatever they want to do. But there's a huge difference between the goat and the sheep because the sheep is defenseless and it knows it. The sheep also is easily frightened. And guys, I struggle with this one because as a man, dadgummit, come on. I'm supposed to be the protector. I'm supposed to be strong. Fear should never permeate me. But the greatest difference between a sheep and a goat you ready for this? Is the sheep are completely dependent upon the shepherd. Esther's story is all about being dependent upon the shepherd. It's our story. Are we dependent upon the shepherd? And if we are, and if we live within him, our eyes open, our hearts open, our ears open, and there are things where we get to enter into life with. And it's not just mediocre life. It's something bigger than what we thought, and it's God's work. And so this is a story all about not Haman, it's not even a story about Queen Esther. It's such a time as this. This is God's story working through people to accomplish his will so that we can enter into great relationship with him. So stop wishing you were someone else, somewhere else doing something else and embrace who you are and in the moment and time in which you live. Oh, Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Esther. Thank you for Haman, that scoundrel. Thank you for Mordecai. 
Thank you for your sovereignty. And thank you that you allow us to be partners with you. Oh God, show us the moments that we are in. Show us where you are calling us to be. And may we never have regrets because of things we didn't do. Though we may fail, at least allow us to engage. Oh God, bless our efforts and bless those who are in the moment and saying, if I perish, I perish, but I'm gonna do God's will. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.